This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Governments today face serious, seemingly intractable public management issues that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, testing the very form, structure, and capacity required to meet these problems head on. Today, most effective government leaders can spark the imagination to look beyond the day-to-day urgencies and reflect on the serious problems and critical challenges they face. Leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amidst uncertainty. This is no small feat, and it is made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. What is the mission of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute? How is it developing the next generation of Ohio's elected state and local leaders? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Trevor Brown, Executive Director of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute and Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. Trevor, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's good to see you again. So Trevor, would you tell us more about the mission of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute? It's very simply to develop the next generation of uh, state and local elected leaders in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. What when did it start? And, and more importantly, what prompted its creation? It's a pretty remarkable guy. The current Speaker of the House in Ohio, gentleman named uh, Cliff Rosenberger, a very young man, second youngest speaker in the history of Ohio, um, and at one point in time, the youngest speaker in the country. Uh, he's in his mid-30s. Uh, and interestingly, was coming to the end of his term and thinking about what kind of impact did he want to have beyond his time in office. Uh, and interestingly, he reflected on his own personal circumstances. Here he was, the youngest person in this role in a long, long time, uh, and yet he was going to have to leave. And why was that? It's term limits. And uh, his insight was that uh, term limits had really reduced the ability of the legislature to play its role as a co-equal branch of government. Uh, Term limits had ceded power to the executive branch uh, and, interestingly, to to lobbyists. Um, They were the enduring institutional memory of the state of Ohio uh, and not the citizen legislators that term limits were were supposed to, to bring into office, which they did. Uh, and so I think in a, in a perfect world, maybe we'd get rid of term limits, but those are constitutionally enshrined now. The uh, state of Ohio embarked on those in the uh, early 1990s, uh, and I don't think there's any great 
push to get rid of them. And so the next best thing he, he could envision was creating a resource for that next generation of leaders moving into elected office to prepare them for the, the, the magnitude of their, of their roles. So he, he wanted to place this in a university uh, because he thought that would be an enduring institution that was neutral and a, and a third party uh, and, and would be respected by, by that, that next generation of leaders coming, coming into these elected roles. Is it just elected officials or are you also um, working with appointed officials too? So the aspiration is to serve both, okay. um, elected and appointed. Um, because it's the state legislature that's provided us this funding, we see those as our principal client, so to speak. Uh, but over time, as we deliver more programming, the hope is to expand that to reach as many people who are new to their roles, inclusive of the staff. Mm -hmm. um, we often neglect the staff when we think about the, the infrastructure of leadership uh, that goes around with elective service. It's not simply the person who was nominated and appointed or, or elected. Um, it's, their, it's their staff as well. How did you get funded? So uh, Speaker Rosenberger and his um, role as the, the Speaker of the House oversees the legislative process around the biennial budget in the, um, in the state of Ohio. He, he worked this through the, the state budget, and so it is an authorization and a contribution from the state to, to start this. But we also have brought other resources to bear in, in this as well. The university through the Glenn College, where this will be its home, has provided some resources as, as well. And we will seek out philanthropic resources too. So as you're, you're building the institute, what, um, what are some of the key leadership programs you're offering? So we are in the development phase, um, and the first programming will roll out this summer. The first is a leadership academy. It will be residential on the campus of Ohio State University, taking elected officials out of their day-to-day -day life. We're going to do it in the summer when it's not the thick of the governing process. The state legislature session will be over then. Um, and the idea is to take them away from the immediate requirements of serving their constituents uh, and get them to reflect, be on campus, put them in uh, experiences where they're with their peers at the state and local level. It'll be a mix of state and local and with experts, uh, both academics and, and practitioners. So one part will be uh, this residential leadership academy. A second part of this is a series of conferences, symposia, bringing thought leaders together to both share lessons learned, but also broadcast out to the broader citizenry about the good work that we're doing. Part three will be trying to get young people engaged, a mission that we in higher ed have all the time, but fortunately the speaker saw this as an important build the pipeline, right? And so it's getting high school students and, and college age students not just interested in public service, which is, again, a mission we have in the college, uh, but in elective service. Uh, this is an era where lots of people who used to think of serving their constituency, it's not on their radar. Perhaps it's the divisiveness of politics. Perhaps it's the intrusion into your personal life that comes with uh, running for office. All those things are still present, but we, we need young people to be thinking about this as a not necessarily a career, but as a part of their, their public service. 
And then there's a fourth part that we will develop, which is a series of training modules in, in key areas, ethics, the budget process, key policy areas, health policy, trying to get resources uh, in front of these decision makers uh, in, in ways that they can consume it efficiently. Could be in-person training, could be online, could be podcasts, could be a variety of ways to convey information to them. And what, what do you see the, are the benefits of, 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 of these tracks? So I think the most fundamental uh, is that it Later, leadership training raises people's horizons. Just the act of inviting someone or, or asking them to apply gets them thinking beyond just what do I need to do today to advance my career? Oh, I, I'm a leader. I, I am here to represent a broader set of interests than just myself. And so just participating in leadership training really raises people's sights and gets them thinking longer term, temporally, what's, what's going to happen down, down the road. But also horizontally, if I'm an elected official, I don't just represent the 51% that voted for me. I represent all of my constituents. So that's the most fundamental um, value of this. More practically, it will put them in a room with uh, or put them in contact with thought leaders and, and, and people who, who are experts in this area, whether by virtue of having served in positions like this before or their academics who've thought a lot about this and done analysis. And then you're building a network. You're, you're building a peer network of others at the, in similar positions going through similar experiences. And one of the things we know from, from years of personal experience and from research is that to be an effective leader is not just a singular personal activity. It's building a network of people who can support you. I can call them up on the phone and say, I've got this problem. Can you just listen to me for a little while while I talk <laughs> through this? Um, and then they offer those lessons that, that they've learned. And so that's going to be a tremendous benefit of this as well. So I know you're, you're fairly new. You're, you're in your infancy as the institute, right? But, but if, I was, if I had just won a special election or something like that, and I really am coming to government with, with no background in government per se – how would I participate in the academy? What's the process? So the academy will be an application-driven process. Uh, we're going to start small. Um, this summer will be our beta test, so oh, to speak. Okay. Yep, this will be our first one. And so we're looking at somewhere in the high teens to low 20s nice. to build a small, That's intimate a good way to build a yep, network and 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 start small, and then hopefully grow it over time. But that will be an application-based process. The training modules I described to you, the array of different, that's going to be openly available to anyone. So imagine an online website with um, a portfolio of, uh, of training opportunities available to you. You can grab a document or a PowerPoint or listen to a, a podcast. That'll be available to, to anybody. Um, and, and our job will be to make that engaging, exciting, accessible. And, and fundamentally tailored to, to their needs. Sometimes in the academic environment, we, we think, well, we know how best to, to <laughs> convey content, um, and we fail to listen to those who actually have to consume the content. And one of our principles will be to make sure that this is delivered in a way that's, that's usable for, for those who, who need it. So, you know, when you were setting up the mission and the focus of the Institute, you, you had to have recognized 
and I know you I know from our other previous conversations that you do. I, I'd like to delve into some of the core leadership challenges being faced, yeah. particularly at the state and local levels, and, and maybe beyond Ohio if you yeah. if you oh, wanted sure. to. And when we say beyond Ohio, sometimes that I'll, I'll oversimplify, and, and every state is different, and, and every situation is different. But as a general rule, I, I think there are a series of things that are facing state and local officials that are challenging. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, the complexity of government is increasing. It's not decreasing. Part of that's driven by the demands of the citizenry. The history of democratic governance is not to reduce our wants, it's to increase them. It's We've opened a process where we ask the people what do they want and need, and they ask for more, typically. And so, and it's not so much they want to consume more, it's that they want our governments to handle increasingly complex challenges. Safety and security in schools right now is the is the hot button issue at the state and local level. Um, and while we've boiled it down to gun rights versus mental health issues or whatever it is, it is a tremendously complex equation. Schools were set up initially to provide education. They now provide an array of services from healthcare for some people to, to sustenance in the form of food. And now there is a responsibility to keep people safe, which was never an expectation when you and I went to school. We just presumed that it was happened. So the the requirements of governance have just gotten more complex. And, and trying to understand that that systemic nature of, of all these public problems is something that a, a newly elected official has to get up to speed much quicker. A second is, is that, and I don't think this is the fault of the actual participants. I think generally the people that run for public office are value-driven. They want to make a difference in the world. Um, at Senator Glenn's funeral a year and a half ago, Vice President Biden was kind enough to come and share some thoughts. And he was asked to reflect on his sort of tutelage under Senator Glenn. Senator Glenn was sort of a generation ahead of him. He said, Senator Glenn and other senators of his ilk said, you should always question the position of your opponents, those on the other side of the aisle, but you should never question their motives. Mm -hmm. They're there for good reasons, right? Mm -hmm. So I think people come into office as value-driven people. But the incentives right now are to promote divisiveness, right? The way that elections are constructed, um, whether it's the way that districts are organized and, and uh, the way that primaries are run, the incentives are to, to divide rather than to come together. And so a challenge that we face at the state and local level, just as we see here in the nation's capital, is how do we get people to figure out how to compromise? Um, that doesn't mean they have to necessarily forego their value-driven positions. Mm -hmm. But how do we get them to come together and come up with compromise solutions so we can move forward on some of these challenging issues? That is a phenomenon that occurs across the states and, and the localities. And it's increasing. Right? I mean, the divisiveness of campaigns and the kind of toxicity of our public discourse is not diminishing. It's, it's getting worse. And yet we still have to make decisions that advance our public ends. I wanted to talk about how you how the Institute would remedy some of those issues. And it, and it looks to me that they'll provide the tools, yeah. um, the insight uh, for when these folks are elected on how to govern and manage um, the, the state uh, the most effectively. Is that kind of where Yeah, I, th I think there's a series of approaches. Uh, number one is there are some tools. We'll be partnering with some other organizations that have really done some great work in this. Uh, I'd highlight the National Institute for Civil Discourse, um, a really phenomenal organization that is developing programs for state and local officials 
to figure out how to operate in a bipartisan fashion, right? And so there, there are some tools and techniques in compromise and conflict negotiation and listening and then moving forward to a decision while taking into account the position of the other side. That's part of it, right? Some sort of explicit training in, in how to negotiate. But there's also some more implicit approaches, namely getting people in a room that disagree with each other and building their personal relationships. So when I talked about the network earlier, this is the long-term goal. And we in universities think long-term. It's not the next election cycle that we're worried about. It's the next generation that we're worried about. And so what we're hoping is, not in the first two years, but in the first 10 years, that you get a sufficient volume of people through the program who are building personal connections across their divisions, that they learn, it's not so much that they learn how to get along, they already know how to get along, yeah. right? Interpersonally, people are really good at this most of the time, but they forget when they walk into their positions. But then if I look across the aisle and say, oh, Michael, I remember we had a beer together or we, we went for a walk together and we talked about our families or whatever it is. Then I remember, oh, you're not a Republican or a Democrat. You're just a person who wants to, to do good in the world. So that'll, that'll be a, a, a part of this as well. And then a third piece of this will be as universities have done uh, for generations and programs in public affairs and administration and public policy are committed to is making fact-based objective decisions, right? Gathering information to use that as the basis for why you voted one way or another. Now, you always have to account for the politics of your district or whatever your elected position may be, but you need to balance that with what's the objective information about the circumstances. And I think the pendulum has swung at this moment too far towards the dynamics of the political environment to the neglect of what we think of as fact-based um, objective analysis. And one of our jobs is to try and move that pendulum, not all the way back, but towards how do we balance these, these factors. What leadership qualities are essential for government leaders? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. What is design thinking? How is design thinking being used to tackle public management challenges? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Gene Litka, author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday, 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on developing the next generation of government leaders with Trevor Brown, Executive Director of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute and Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. But now you're the Dean 
of the Glenn College of Public Affairs at, at The Ohio State University and now the executive director of the state uh, of Ohio's Leadership Institute. Given that background, given your academic interests, the fact that most of, you know, unlike most, your academic interest is really practical. I mean, yeah. it's right in there. What are some of the key leadership skills and competencies needed, given your background, needed by folks to succeed in public in the public sector? And how do these skills differ, say, from those found in the private yeah. sector? So one school of thought is there is no difference, okay. right? I mean, that, that some of the skills that we need in the public sector are the same that we need in the private. But I think there are some important contextual differences that enhance certain kinds of skills that are needed in the, in the public sector. It's always the case that in any leadership role, you're balancing multiple interests. Those interests are, there's a multiplicity of those interests in the public sector, particularly in the political environment. Uh, so those people who are moving into elected leadership roles have to get really flexible and, and agile at weighing different views and values, whether it's um, maybe we're in a moment where people are concerned about cost efficiencies, but others were concerned about equity. Um, and usually it's both. Uh, and what are the trade-offs between those? Interestingly, in light of what we were talking about earlier, I think we're in an era where people see those as oppositional. Mm -hmm. right? and, and we know from years in the public sector that the trick of being an effective leader is finding that middle ground, not just between positions, but between values. Mm -hmm. What are the trade-offs between efficiency and equity? Those are magnified in the, in the public sector. Uh, and, and we need leaders who are comfortable making those, first off, identifying those value trade-offs and then figuring out how to balance them. Senator Glenn had many parts of his career. He was a, a military war hero. He was, you know, first in space as an American to orbit the earth. But he was also an elected official. Um, and, and he took great pride in that role as an elected official. And uh, one of the things that he often reflected on at the tail end of his life, uh, sadly, when he just passed away a year and a half ago, was that he was a Democrat at heart. Mm -hmm. But he was an Ohioan at heart. And having to navigate the what are the interests of the Democratic Party versus what are the interests of the state of Ohio, that's not something that comes easily to everyone, mm -hmm. right? And I think in a corporate environment, we narrow. We think, who are my shareholders? Who are my clients? Who are my customers? And I'm going to focus like a laser beam on those people. Effective public leaders have to think more broadly about who their who their clients' constituents, stakeholders are. Uh, you know, as you build up the curriculum and and get the programs together, you know, thinking about the qualities, the leadership qualities that that seem to resonate best in the public sector setting, yeah. that 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 those identifying those trade offs between equity and and efficiency. You know, are there things that public sector leaders, whether elected or otherwise? Um, whether it's the legislative branch or the executive branch, are there things they can learn from private sector in terms of leadership? Yes, um, a, a couple. Well, the first is um, we're talking about sort of using objective information to make decisions. By and large, I, I think those in the in the private sector that is a that is an assumed starting point for leadership. Right? If I'm going to make a decision and I'm thinking about how it's going to impact my bottom line or whatever it may be. I need to start from a basis of fact. I need to understand my product and what it is I sell and what's the likelihood that people are going to buy it. Um, I think sometimes public officials forget about those fact-based um, requirements of their decision-making. Uh, and, and so we often hear 
public officials say, well, we just need to make this organization run more like a business. If that is our goal, let's start with that founding principle. We will use information as the basis for decision-making. A basic tenet of, of any private entity, um, it should be a basic tenet of, of any public entity as well. Uh, and sadly, I think, in the, at least in the elected sphere, we've, we've gotten away from that. A second is, is that there's a, and this is true again, I think of both, but it's, it's amplified in the, in the private sector, is clarity of, of messaging. Being very clear and effective in in getting information across in an interpersonal session, maybe it's to setting to motivate people so they understand what the goals and objectives are. In a larger setting, it's communicating your your message to those who might vote for you. And more than just signaling in a few sound bites, it's that ability to convey complex information so that people can understand it, so that they join you in that decision. They support you not simply because of a slogan, mm -hmm. but they they support you because they understand and they trust you to make the decision, uh, whatever it may be that you're faced with, because you've explained to them these are the trade-offs. This is why we're going the direction we're going. Um, and while this may hurt you over the short run, it's going to benefit all of us over the long run. That is an essential uh, skill that I think many private leaders are, are good at saying, Here, here's how we have to invest in this area or do the following activity because it will pay dividends for us down, down the road. You know, um, what does the Institute hold as core public values, mm -hmm. and how are you working to cultivate and develop these values? So the first uh, one is um, as a public institution, and this is this is a statement about the Glenn College and the Ohio State University. Is uh, and we are very aware of this, given that we live in a very purple state. At any one moment, it might be red or blue, but if you look over the history of Ohio, it swings. We're nonpartisan, so. While we may have the name of Senator Glenn on our mantle, uh, we're very committed to that nonpartisan objective presentation of information and skills and, and knowledge. Uh, and so a tenant of the center's operation, or the institute's rather, will be that, that nonpartisan approach. We will welcome all parties to participate, Republican, Democrat, Independent, and all should feel comfortable being in, in that setting. A second value-based tenant is the provision of information from an objective third party, a neutral source in the form of the university, to decision makers, right? Is that we will be committed to making sure the information that we provide to legislators or other elected officials has gone through a scrutiny that suggests that it's balanced, uh, it's fair, uh, it's not skewed towards one political perspective or the other. And then the third is, is that we are committed to a value-based approach to, to leadership, that um, in the public sector, we start from those, those values. Uh, the people that come to public service, they often have them already. That's what drove them. But to remind them, in, as they get more embedded into the incentives of running for office or whatever, it's to run, why did you go down this road? Why did you come here? What was that spark in your stomach that made you want to serve? Tell me that story about what drove you to elected office in the first place. And always use that as a touchstone to remind yourself of why you're sitting in the, in the chair that you're in. You know, you mentioned earlier that part of the genesis for uh, starting the, the Institute was the reality of term limits and the effects, whether unintended or intended, of term limits to sort of take away a little bit of the institutional yeah. uh, knowledge. And I was wondering, is it, you know, to some, I want to play a little devil, devil's advocate, but you, you mentioned something earlier which I thought was interesting. 
for some, isn't it isn't it worthwhile to have term limits? So this way, you are able to. It's sort of a reasonable trade-off, a sh short-term loss of institutional um, knowledge. So you mitigate the consequences of an entrenched special interest. But you did point out, and I want to answer the question for you, the elected officials may leave, but that special interest, those lobbyists are still around. Yeah, and thank you for coming back to this. And you just said two words that are important, special interest and lobbyists. Those are two different things. And, and it's important to draw that distinction um, I, I think you're absolutely right that one of the virtuous intentions of term limits, and I think there's evidence to suggest this part may be working, is to shake up those iron triangles that we used to talk about in political science mm -hmm. between you know, elected officials, the special interests, regulators, whatever it might be, to break those ossified connections. And I think it does that. But what it does is it's not so much that it advantages special interests, it advantages lobbyists. Yeah. And lobbyists aren't bad people. They're, they're, I, we see them as public servants too. They were drawn to represent a multiplicity of interests. The challenge is they're not elected officials, yeah. right? They're, they're there as private interests to collect a paycheck. And again, that's not a bad thing, but their incentives are to represent certain interests, um, those who, who are, we hope, uh, people of integrity, but are pursuing their, their special interests. And lobbyists... Um, they come to know more about the interests of those organizations they, they're to represent, the processes of governance. They understand how to navigate that process, and they know the political dynamics of the, of the districts that these people come from. And I'm glad that there are good people in those roles, but again, those people are not accountable to the, to the voter. They are accountable to those who, who've asked them to serve on their behalf, and they have personal accountability to the elected officials that they deal with. So that's not the way we designed the American system of governance. We didn't say that we would put the power of decision making in, in those that are paid to represent those interests. We said we would put that in the hands of the, the people's representatives. So I agree. It's, it, sh it shakes things up a little bit. But in shaking things up, when the sands fell back down, it put it in the hands of, of lobbyists. And we just want to shake the sands up again and put it put it more in the hands of those elected representatives. So how you know you mentioned the track, you mentioned the things that the institute's doing, but I, I'm wondering how are you capturing the potential loss of that institutional knowledge? What what are your visions for doing that? Well, and actually, we model it after um, a lot of the things the center, your center, does so well. We see you as a repository of yeah. some of the best lessons in leadership. I was as mentioned earlier, proud to be a, a contributor. And universities, again, are a similar kind of repository of knowledge. Uh, at the same time, we're creating new knowledge. Our faculty and other leading thinkers are are stimulated and generating new knowledge. But then it's writing it down. Um, it's it's codifying it in a certain particular way and making it accessible to people. So we can envision creating similar kinds of outputs to, to what you do. Conversations like this recorded and captured and, and shared. I think sometimes the easiest thing for people to access in decision-making roles is just conversations between people, but conversations that are rooted in expertise. Um, and then we will capture that expertise and somebody who's driven to learn more can go and read the technical report, read the the, uh, the issue brief, or the deep research that, that comes behind it. So we will we will have a catalog of that kind of information as a part of, of this. And we want to put Ohio's best thinkers and experts in front of these decision makers, because we know that 
so much of the decision making in politics is based off of interpersonal relations. And so we want to connect our faculty, the faculty of our peer institutions across the state of Ohio, that's the Bliss Institute at the University of Akron, the Voinovich School at Ohio University, uh, the Levine College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State, uh, and other universities. Get those experts back connected to uh, elected officials so they see them as a trusted source as they're weighing um, information, uh, weighing the decisions that, that are going to require some information. So I was remiss in not asking you initially, what, what would you envision or what do you uh, have as your key strategic priorities for, say, the next year? Yeah. Well, we're still in our startup phase. Yeah. And so, number one, you got to build the right team, as we know from yeah. um, many of the lessons <laughs> that you guys share in the IBM Center. Uh, so we're hiring staff and putting together teams of experts to, to, to build content and think about how to deliver this knowledge. Uh, so that's step one. Uh, step two is to, to beta test some of the, the, the content and the ways that we deliver. So I mentioned earlier the, the first Leadership Academy cohort will, will go through this summer, and uh, they, they will be a test case for us, mm -hmm. and we'll learn some lessons from them. And one of the things I think we do well in universities, even though we sometimes get criticized for being reactionary and ossified, we're committed to learning, and we, we want to make improvements. So we'll run a cohort this summer. We'll learn from that, and, and then make improvements and roll out better versions. Uh, so that's step two is to, to start that process of putting some content out there, listening to those who would use it or participate in it, and then, and then making improvements to it. Those are our two big goals mm -hmm. this year. So do you envision, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned the center a couple of times, do you envision uh, producing original scholarship, thought leadership in this area? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I know we, uh, perhaps a later question, and I'll, I'll segue into that too, is are there others that have, have done this? Yeah. And there are. And so, Yes, we will create some original content, but also part of what we're going to try and do is link to the expertise that others have already created. And so we are we see one of our roles as a a, a trusted portal mm -hmm. into the extant knowledge that's already out there. So, for example, if somebody is interested in executive leadership in state government and wants to learn lessons, let's direct them to to your your research. And so we would link right to that. Then there are other institutes like the one we're trying to build that have been around for a while. There's a, a longstanding program in Michigan. Um, the Carl Vinson Institute of Government at the University of Georgia has been doing this for decades and just an exemplar in that area. Um, our job is not to reinvent something that's already been done really well. Well, let's, let's direct you to there. But there are issues in Ohio that are specific to Ohio. And so then in terms of new content, it's figuring out what can we do to add value? What you know, We have an expert in K through 12 education in the state of Ohio. Well, we'll put out a, a policy brief on that and get it in front of decision makers. But again, general lessons and executive leadership, we're coming to you. What are the strategic priorities for the state of Ohio Leadership Institute? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. 
Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on developing the next generation of government leaders with Trevor Brown, Executive Director of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute and Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. See, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, you're not reinventing the wheel. You, yep. You're going to point um, – there's a network of, of institutes that have certain – um, you know, thought leadership that's already available to you. And it's great to point the, the folks who, who come to the Institute in that direction or use it during your, uh, your workshops or what have you. But my question is, you know, how much of what you want to gear uh, your collateral, your content, your intellectual prowess around what happens in Ohio yeah. So how much is Ohio-centric and how much can be – It's a good question and that's one of those things I think we have to go to school on a little yeah. bit, honestly. I think we, we start from the premise that um, leadership is contingent on context and, and so that's true both at the state level in the sense that Ohio may be different than, um, than a boundary state like Michigan. Um, but it also is contingent on the role that, that you're in. Um, and different people are going to come to this with different levels of experience. And so we're going to be, we're going to try to be as customized as possible. But as we listen and learn, my guess is there will be some challenges that, that these folks, the participants face that are generalizable. And that's where we as the providers have to be listening to say, what do we, what is specific about Ohio? Are there some specific contextual issues and what's generalizable? Um, I, I think at the start, a lot of the way we present the information will be very specific to Ohio. It's interesting, having taught lots of case-based classes, um, the Harvard Kennedy School, there are lots of great stuff, the electronic hallway. I use a lot of the material from IBM as cases. As an instructor, I can see the generalizable lesson, but sometimes participants need to see it and hear the words, my agency or, or my town. Um, and if you just swapped that, then they get it. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is my place. I get that. And I think the more we can frame the delivery of that generalizable content in their specific context, the more willingness they will have to, to internalize those lessons. Um, and, and so, again, that's where effective teaching comes in, is trying to figure out how to take a case from some other context reframe it and say, okay, this was this was this setting, but let's talk about it and tell me about your your town or your circumstances. Do you envision as you know you, you beta test the, the process and I, I'm probably getting out ahead of you your, where you are, but do you envision having a a bench of, if you will, of uh, fellows maybe? Yeah. 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 Over time, yeah. it will be people who've gone through the institute, but there are lots of people who've served in Ohio government recently and over the last decades who, who are exemplary public officials who have deep knowledge of a particular issue, maybe because they've been term limited out. They have that knowledge now and they're committed to sharing that experience. There's a lot of people that want to pay it forward. Uh, and one of our roles will be to create a, a place where those people can go and then share that knowledge with 
current elected officials, aspirational elected officials, and students. Because um, again, one of our missions will be to get high school kids and college kids thinking about the legislature as a, as a place where they might want to want to go work. And often that's because somebody, they sat and they had a conversation with somebody who was in that role uh, and shared with them the joys and pleasures of, of being an elected official, balanced versus the challenges. And those personal connections then motivate people to go on and, and pursue that. So the short answer is, yeah, we're going to have we're going to have those people in in as fellows. And the next question, excuse me, and it transitions to your other hat that you wear, uh, which is the dean right. of the Glenn College of Public Affairs. Do you envision? I know the institute sits within that domain, mm -hmm. but do you envision? Is there a aside from your leadership in both areas? Right. Are they going to feed one another? Yeah, and and again, they are separate entities, and and we are creating a structure around the state of Ohio Leadership Institute that will make it a an independent uh, unit. But one of the values of having it embedded in the university is there's the boundaries will be porous. Yeah, there will be there will be flow back and forth. So, for example, at the, the I'm talking about students earlier. We might have a student in one of our degree programs that wants to intern in in the state legislature, and hadn't thought about that as a possibility. Um, I want to I get that kid into the into the state legislature as a page or whatever. Just so we take advantage of that. Um, and, and similarly, I may have a faculty member in the Glenn College who's done some path-breaking work and wants to share that expertise with a committee or, or a set of decision makers. By all means, let's take advantage of that. Um, and then vice versa. We, we can learn from their experiences having um, the, the knowledge and, and learning is a two-way. So having the opportunity for faculty from across the state at different institutions to be in the room with elected officials and hear the challenges they face helps us better prepare for delivering them that content at a later date. So total synergy from from having the, the two entities uh, together. So you came to D.C. Uh, to do a, um, I think you, you host D.C. Dialogue, yeah. I believe, right? Yeah. Um, I want you to tell us more about that concept yep. and 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 then tell us um, what are some of the topics you have discussed or most recently discussed and what you might yep. be focusing on in the future. Great series. Um, started in Ohio had, on our campus there, uh, and we specifically chose the title Dialogue. We started this about three years ago. We, we noticed the change in the nature of conversations, <laughs> less conversational <laughs> and more, yeah, a lot, a lot of screaming. Uh, and and we wanted to be a, a caretaker of a respectful discourse around contentious topics. We don't we don't want to paper over the fact that people disagree about stuff, uh, but we want there to be a place where people can have those disagreements in an environment where they feel respected and allowed to voice their perspective and learn from the other side or from multiple other sides. So the, the basic notion is, is that we, we bring um, somebody who has deep knowledge and expertise in a particular policy issue or management activity, and then we often partner them with somebody who maybe has a different perspective, who either serves as a moderator or serves as a, a counterpoint to that. Uh, and it starts with a discussion between the, the moderator and the participant or participants. But then fairly quickly, we want to draw the audience in. Um, and so it's it's not a, 
well, there'll be five minutes at the end for you to ask questions. It's about 15 minutes into the conversation. Let's get you into the conversation. And so we turn to the audience and the, the role of the effective moderator is to pull people in. Uh, and we've been successful in that. And so we do that on campus once a month. We have an intern program here in Washington where we send baccalaureate college students um, anywhere from 10 to 15 in the regular fall and spring and about 30 some in the summer. Uh, and Ohio State has a thick alumni network here in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. We bring them together along with friends of the Glenn College to have these conversations. We did one on net neutrality, a very complicated and contentious issue with different perspectives. Uh, and it's not, it's one of those issues you quickly come. It's not one side or the other. It's like 10 sides. Uh, but we had the benefit of having somebody who knows it very, very well, which is Ohio State graduate uh, Tom Wheeler, uh, who oh, was, he, uh, he went to Ohio State. Yeah, he was in Ohio State. He's a Buckeye. Um, and uh, he uh, uh, he served as the, the chairman of the uh, Federal Communications Commission and, and was a, you know, sort of tip of the spear on the, the um, net neutrality rules that are now being uh, changed, potentially. Uh, so it was a great opportunity for people to, to first learn from his experience, but then engage him in a discussion. And so we will be able to bring in really skilled interviewers who can, who can handle these, these kinds of, of, of issues and attract a new audience That's for us. That's interesting that they're, they're giving you, you can tap certain personalities yeah. that then bring their... Uh, and this is also one of the benefits of being in Ohio. Yeah. Um, for, for the NPR and, and public television uh, reporters, they benefit from the conversation, they enjoy the, the, the topic, but then they're in Ohio and they can do other reporting while they're there. Um, and as we enter into another election cycle, Ohio is always important. Um, and so there's a lot of reporting they can do around some of the issues that are happening in, in Ohio. Given the report that came out last year um, and and the dialogue that you yeah. co-hosted and, and some of the, I don't know, recommendations or insights versus what you see at the state level, yeah. are there this, are there similar issues dealing with workforce? Yeah, in the sense that the civil service systems that exist at the state level are kind of mapped to the federal system, okay. right? I mean, and you know, again, variation across states, but but fundamentally, it's a it, it's a it's a system that's rooted in a in a different era, uh, and and many in executive positions and in in operational positions in government see some of the benefits of that traditional civil service system, that commitment to. Uh, a meritocracy and and protections from sort of political interference, uh, organization around job specific skills, you know, sort of the tenets of the traditional bureaucratic model. Um, but like all systems that are in place for a long period of time, there's a kind of a ossification that occurs. Uh, and so I think there is a desire, irrespective of your political leanings, that we need to be thinking about alternative models, more performance-based systems, uh, more rewards for performance, um, and, and perhaps negative consequences for poor performance. I think there's a, a real desire to include those. Um, more agility, um, more ability to expand or contract workforce uh, as necessary to deal with, with the challenges. I mean, right now, workforces grow um, and then they, they, they decline through attrition, right? I mean, the, the kind of classic uh, way that you, you shrink a workforce in the public sector is you wait for people to retire. Um, that's not an effective way to run an organization. Uh, so these questions that the federal executive civil service faces are true at the state level as well. Um, and, and, 
because we are in a federal intergovernmental system here in the United States, sometimes we we forget that the states are dealing with as, as complex issues as the federal government is dealing with, often the same issues in partnership. Um, and so the challenges of working at the state and local level are often as high as at the, the federal system. And you need really talented um well-trained, um, committed people in those in those roles, and uh, and the the federal civil service and state civil service systems need to adapt uh, to be able to to adjust to the changing times that we're in. How are technological disruptions changing the way governments govern and the public sector manages? I'll explore this question and so much more when a special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. What is design thinking? How is design thinking being used to tackle public management challenges? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professor Gene Litka, author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday, 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on developing the next generation of government leaders with Trevor Brown, Executive Director of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute and Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. Keeping on the idea of the future, um, Trevor, how do you see technological disruptions? And what I'm going is artificial intelligence, blockchain, virtual reality. How do these phenomena, how are they going to change the way government does business, how it's governed, how it's managed? Yeah. Um, I'll talk, since you were asking earlier about the state level, I'll, yeah. I'll keep that that focus. Um, there's no question that those will be disruptive forces. Part of one of the great challenges at the state level is as much as we will lament that the federal government is behind, many state governments are farther behind. Um, and, and this is not a, a criticism of people's ill intentions or not being, it's just hard to change um, at the state level. And, and the, the state governments that I'm familiar with, um, I grew up in Indiana um, and um, worked obviously extensively now in Ohio, um, are, are still wrestling with big data, for example, right? I mean, how to use massive volumes, take advantage of massive volumes of information to improve the way that we do decision making. Something the private sector has been doing for decades now. Um, so that's not even artificial intelligence and, and we're not even there, right? We're, we're still at a much basic, more basic level. Um, and, and I think one of the challenges is how do you build those foundational systems while also then leapfrogging ahead to take advantage of um, whatever the new disruptive innovation is. 
and I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm of mixed mind about this. Sometimes I, the, the aspirational part of me is like, let's jump ahead. But then the pragmatic part of me is let's just get the basics down, right? Let's just figure out how to run government adequately and effectively um, and, and then increment our way to those, those innovations and disruptions and, and let the private sector figure out those lessons. Let them be the, the test tubes and we, we, can, we can import some of that expertise and, and knowledge. Um, and, and I think actually places like Ohio and actually a lot of city governments um, in part because they work, we also always think of, we tell the story of local government is the closest to the service recipient, right? They're the, the closest to, to the actual person receiving the service. They're also the closest to businesses. Um, and so many city governments, because they work closely with innovative companies, can ingest those those lessons much faster than state and, and federal governments. And there are a lot of lessons to then learn at how effective city governments are. Um, and there's a lot more of them. So there's more, there, there's that it's, we talk about the 50 laboratories of, of state government. There are thousands of, of Petri dishes of, yeah. of local governments that we can learn from as well. Great. You know, before we, we close, I want to ask you a question. So, I, I, I want to talk to you personally about your own leadership principles. What, what are Trevor Brown? How does Trevor Brown lead? As I was sharing with you before we started this, and um, it, it starts with listening. Um, a, a lesson I learned early on is that, um, particularly because I work in an environment that's people-driven, the the nature of being in in higher education is very at least in my field, it's not labs, it's not it's not building a product, so to speak, because it's interacting with students, it's interacting with faculty, it's interacting with staff, stakeholders, et cetera, very people-driven process. Um, and people are the most complex entities in the world, right? As much as we fascinate over technology, the human brain and the psychology of humans is far more complex. And it starts with understanding that at the micro level. And so a founding principle for me is I got to listen to what it is, a student, a faculty member, an employee, what drives them? Um, and how do I tap into that drive and marry your personal goals with the goals of the organization that I run? How, how do I create the context in which what you want aligns with what the organization needs. Um, and that's not simply saying, I'm just going to, you know, give you everything you want. It's how do I then shape the, the context through the messages I send, uh, through the incentives I put in place to drive your behavior towards the collective ends of the, of the college and ultimately the university. Um, so again, starts with listening. It also then, the second principle is having clear goals, but flexible goals. And I think we hear a lot in, in leadership about, it's about message clarity and you know, focusing on those goals, but environments are complex. Um, and in higher ed, we have a very complex, the, the, the world is changing rapidly. Costs that students face is, are astronomical. Um, state support in public institutions continues to erode. Um, there are uh, competitive um, insurgents from online deliverers to, to all sorts of other sources. 
So we have to be able to, you know, keep our eye on the prize, so to speak, but also be flexible about pivoting and, and redirecting. So that's, I try to strike that balance between what do I think are my goals with what are the, you know, what are the, the inputs that are changing that, that landscape so I can adjust and adapt. Um, and then the third is, um, and, and this comes in part from being in the field that I'm in and having the, the great honor of working with and for Senator Glenn, just reminding yourself, wh why'd you get into this business? And, and for him, it was never about, even though he had so many firsts, you know, he's, he's still to this day the oldest human being that was ever in space, he never talked about those firsts. He always talked about everybody else, right? He just was a humble person. Um, who was from a small town in Ohio that just wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself. Um, and reminding yourself, um, that's why I did this, right? I didn't do this to become dean. Um, I wasn't, I didn't wake up when I was 10 and say, <laughs> I want to be, be a dean. Um, no, I wanted to be in a That'll position. Be yeah, right. Um, or, or foolish. <laughs> what kind of kid wants to be a dean? Um, it, but no, I wanted to be in a role where I was helping other people uh, advance a collective mission, right? Um, and and so that's a touchstone of the way I, I lead. Um, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. You know, Trevor, how can people get in touch with, uh, the, the, learn more about the, the Institute? Can you give us some information? Yep. Um, web is the best way, glenn.osu.edu backslash S-O-L-I backslash is our website, or you can just Google um, the Glenn College and the State of Ohio Leadership Institute, um, or call me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an accessible person. Uh, reach out to me over email uh, or, or over the phone, um, and we will be putting out material and opportunities like this to, to share, share more, but we will, we will, uh, we will have a very outward-facing And I'd like to have you uh, on again. Great. Uh, in the next, uh, you know, six months or what have you. I'd love to and uh, share progress. Yeah, let yeah, me know. No, it's a great opportunity and it's always a pleasure to talk with oh, you and um, huge fans of the center. I just want to endorse uh, the center as a great, and as I said earlier, it really is a model for the way to uh, um, build a, a knowledge base and then make it accessible to, to decision makers. Well, we would love to partner with you, especially Good. in the leadership portfolio. Excellent. Great. Great. Thank okay. you, sir. Thanks. Perfect. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on developing the next generation of government leaders with Trevor Brown, Executive Director of the State of Ohio Leadership Institute and Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. 
Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.